It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. It's clear that inflation is a challenge. It is a global challenge. It is not a good picture here. Americans are squeezed by the cost of living. It's been true for years. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. He is the one person at the center of the story. Uh, Once again, I will assert my Fifth Amendment right to decline to answer your question. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The last CPI before the midterms. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as inflation continues to defy gravity. And the Fed will bring you the view directly from the White House in a conversation with presidential advisor Gene Sperling. From economist Douglas Holtz-Eakin and from Bloomberg's own Tom Keene, who's spending this week at the IMF. Later, the January 6th committee holds its final hearing. It just ended. Votes to subpoena Donald Trump. While they're at it, we'll hear from Rebecca Royfe of New York Law School, former assistant district attorney for New York County. An analysis from our panel, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano, Republican strategist Lisa Miller of Cogent Strategies, former comms director at the RNC. The White House putting the full court press on today's inflation report, knowing that Wall Street does not represent the American household when it comes to this story. That remarkable reversal doesn't exactly reflect the conversation inside the Beltway or at the kitchen table. President Biden spoke about it at an event on his infrastructure plans today in L.A. Americans are squeezed by the cost of living. It's been true for years, and folks don't need to be a report to tell them they're being squeezed. Fighting this battle every day is the key reason why I ran for president of the United States. But the report was there. Whether they needed to see it or not, it reflects what's happening now. The snapshot in time with four weeks to go to the midterms in the White House trying to put a good spin on this. As we bring in Gene Sperling, White House American Rescue Plan Coordinator, he's a senior advisor to the president, former director of the National Economic Council. Gene, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thanks for having us. There was a sense of helplessness when the CPI hit this morning, and obviously Wall Street has gone in another direction here. And I know the White House has also seen some incremental improvement. Brian Deese was speaking to that earlier on Bloomberg. But the Fed clearly has not yet had a major impact on inflation. What is it about this trend that that continues to defy predictions? Well, I, I would be a little more positive than uh, than what you described. Because, I mean, let's just look first of all at the, the third quarter, the last three months. It has been 2% annualized the last in the third quarter. Com- that's compared to 11% uh, in the second quarter. Now, a lot of that is obviously been energy energy prices going down, but we've also seen used cars uh, prices going down, other things. And I think there is some reason to be optimistic about the path forward. I mean, one, half of the increase in core inflation really was from shelter, rent, Mm -hmm. Um, but we've seen private sector uh, indicators, apartment.com, Case, Schiller, have both suggested home prices and new leases 
uh, you know, came down in August. Now, I understand there's a lag before that goes into the official CPI, but it does suggest there's some more positive signs there. The job opening data with 1.1 million less job openings is certainly showing some cooling. The supply chain index that the Fed publishes is back to 20 February 2020 levels. And I've just read so much recently, including from J.P. Morgan, about 732 billion inventory. Uh, people are predicting aggressive discounting, aggressive uh, online discounting during the, the Christmas season. So, you know, yes, you would have liked to seen uh, some of that show up in the core inflation today, and it yeah. didn't. But I still think there is some, you know, real solid evidence of that, that right. things will move in the right direction. And obviously, headlines down from 9-1 to 8-2 uh, since June. But, of course, nobody thinks, nobody, including this White House, thinks that's fast enough, even sure. if it is directionally correct. But yeah, we've had some big rate hikes here, and it looks like they're going to be more big uh, hikes coming so it's clearly going to take a long time to get this down to where you want it. And, and voters are asking how long. Is it possible to answer that? I think that, um, you know, I, I've never tried to play forecast or, um, you know, in, and, you know, give a precise date or a precise number. I will. But I do feel comfortable saying that many of the top forecasters are predicting that things will look uh you know, significantly better uh, next year. And again, um, uh, you know, there have been times where I wouldn't have felt as comfortable saying that there were indicators like the job opening or the record inventory yeah. or the projections of discounting. So well, when you uh, say significantly I, I better next year, more... does, does that mean that you, do, you don't see a recession in our future? Or do you mean that specific to prices, Gene? I, I see that. I see the prices seem headed in the right direction. In terms of, you know, will we will we actually have a downturn? Um, you know, we still see a lot of signs of resilience in the U.S. economy. I think the fact that we've had uh, a recovery that not only has had record job growth and 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 so many people working, mm-hmm. but so much less scarring that oh we went through after the Great Recession with long-term employment and 17% youth unemployment. So I think you're still seeing that people um, are, you, you know, that, that whether it's state, local governments, businesses, and, you know, households, you're seeing a degree of resilience that gives us more confidence that we are better positioned than almost any country to be able to take some of the discomfort from uh, a higher uh, interest rates, uh, but and still make that transition to stable mm-hmm. uh, economic growth with lower prices, but without having to give up all of the historic gains that we have made in the labor market. Well, maybe that answers my next question. But you know, this job market is it's it's a curse and a blessing, right? Are you, are you concerned more now that beating inflation will require damaging the job market, as Elizabeth Warren has warned about? Well, I again, I think we. You know, we, we are we are still uh, hopeful, and we think there are are good reasons to suggest that um, that we can make this transition um, without the type of you know hard landing that 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 you do see. You know, some people uh, 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 you know warn about. You know, for us, uh, uh, you know, even when you look at some of the Fed numbers on the jobs market, uh, you still see the the possibility of. You know, whether you want to call it a soft landing or uh, just a transition to a period of more stable growth mm-hmm. uh, and more stable and lower prices going forward. And, you know, I understand the, the fact that some people, you know, what they can see as a blessing can seem, uh, uh, you know, different to some worried about inflation. Yeah, but right. I think when you're looking at can you, again, bring down inflation and with, without avoiding the kind of hard uh, downturn, you know, the fact that, that so many people are working, the fact that so many people, according to major banks, still have checking accounts that look more flush than they did, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, when the pandemic started, those all suggest that we may be well-positioned 
uh, uh, without that type of downturn. I consider like the state local level. Uh, when I was a uh, national economic advisor in 2011, 2012, and 2013, yeah. contraction at the state local level was a major issue, subtracting from growth, subtracting from jobs. Because of the American Rescue Plan, those, a lot of those states and cities and counties now are still addressing real issues from the pandemic. They're not doing layoffs. Those are all, I, to me, uh, things that show that the policies we've uh, put forward have created a degree of resilience in our economy and, and um, uh, that, that I think does, again, give us optimism that we are better positioned than our, our fellow advanced countries to make this transition without yeah. giving up. Uh, uh, the major gains in the job market. Well, you clearly have an optimistic view. I guess I'd ask you lastly how worried you are about about winter, how worried our listeners should be about the winter heating season, Gene Sperling, whether they use heating oil in the Northeast or or natural gas somewhere else. Well, um, you know, that that is a really good question. I mean, one of the things we were proud about with the American Rescue Plan was that we did have a historic increase, several billion dollars, uh, unprecedented, for LIHEAP or low-income housing uh, energy assistance. And I think that, uh, you know, as um, our Congress comes back, uh, you know, that's one of, that's an issue that is, is, is worth, uh, worth looking at, but. Um, it's going to hurt uh, though a little uh, bit, right? I, uh, uh, you know, I, I try not to either make uh, uh uh, be, pretend to be a, an ex, a precise economic forecaster sure. or, or, or the weatherman uh, <laughs> at this point. When Jay but Powell course, uses the word pain, though, we listen. We have, to keep, we have to keep our eye on, and as you say, you know, can have, there can be very different impacts in different parts of the country depending on uh, the source of heating. Gene Sperling, I'm glad you gave us some time today. White House American Rescue Plan Coordinator and Senior Advisor, to the president with us on CPI Day. Gene Sperling, thanks as always for talking to Bloomberg. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And as always, we add another voice for a different perspective, and we're glad to be joined by Douglas Holtz-Eakin of the American Action Forum, the president and former Council of Economic Advisors, chief economist. He knows where Gene Sperling's coming from, and he certainly knows where this CPI is coming from. Although, uh, Douglas, welcome back. I don't know if, if you can justify where the number is coming from. Can you believe how, how stubborn this has been, considering the magnitude of the rate hikes we've seen so far? Uh, yes, I, I think this is not uh, very surprising. First of all, remember that regardless of your preferred measure of inflation, uh, it's still higher than is the funds rate. So we have negative real interest rates, and we aren't even close to neutral. So while we, wow. you know, the Fed spent last month, last year, with his foot on the gas, it has certainly taken its foot on off the gas, but it hasn't tapped the brakes yet. Mm. So once we get you know real rates up into positive territory and, and we're in a restrictive posture, we'll see how much that brings down inflation. The other reason I'm not surprised is mechanically that all roads lead to shelter inflation. Uh, in the CPI, shelter is a third of, of the CPI. It's a third of the typical family budget. And it has none of these things people like to point fingers at. There's no supply chains. There's no Saudis. There's no, no big companies. Right. The apartments are here. The, the houses are here. Shelter inflation has risen every month since January 2021. Uh, it has yet to show any signs of peaking. Year-over-year inflation went up from 5.7 to 6.2 to 6.6 in the most recent report. And in, until you get shelter inflation under control, you can't have success on the CPI. So this is a, at six, everything has to be zero to get to two. I mean, that's not going to happen. Wow. So this, so, this is a so tough spot for this White House, Doug. You know that uh, yeah. when when we step back and look at what they're actually looking, and I know it's their job to be optimistic. You have to talk up the economy. That's the deal when you're part of the administration. But pointing to the job market as a source of strength uh, without also acknowledging the trouble that it's bringing. And I know that this is right. always a popular viewpoint. Uh, but that wage inflation is a, a persistent issue and that they may have to actually harm the job market to get this job done will create a very difficult narrative for the White House next year. They're also pointing to lower gas prices. And, Douglas, we have every reason to believe that oil and gas are going up. You mentioned the Saudis. This is going to be yeah. a tough winter. Absolutely. Uh, there's no question about that. So, so is uh, it smart for them to be speaking optimistically right. about this stuff, or does the White House need a new narrative? Uh, I think they need a new narrative. I mean, they, they have not had a decent narrative on inflation yet. Their narrative has been 
uh, corporate greed, as if the era of, of corporate benevolence had somehow ended. Um, they said it's supply chains. Uh, well, uh, you know, as I said, shelter inflation, there's no supply chains there. Uh, it, it's it's the, the Saudis and gas prices, but we, we, we're going to tap the strategic petroleum reserve. They, they've gone through a million stories. None of them address the basic problem, which is they made a big policy error with overstimulus in the economy, fiscal and monetary last year, and we're reaping the results. Hmm. And here's the truth, and, and, and you said it really well. The hot labor market and the high inflation are flip sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. They come together, yeah. and if you want to deal with the inflation, you're going to see some relatively bad news in the labor market. There's no way around that. And, and so what I try to remind people is when you're thinking about the White House, Fed, whoever you're pointing fingers at at the moment, Remember that once you make the mistake of letting inflation get entrenched, you have no good choices. Is it? You either live with the inflation or you deal with what you have to do to get rid of it. Both are really bad news stories. Are we there, though? Is it, if, is it entrenched in your view? Yes. Uh, so we, saw the, we saw the things that um, caused this Fed to, to actually do a big U-turn and aggressively take on inflation. We saw inflation expectations go from well-contained to not, to go from 3% to well over uh, seven in one year out, and then the three and fives were, were moving up. And, and that was the hallmark of the, the last era of great inflation. You know, in the 70s and 80s, people expected double-digit inflation. And so they built into their wage request double-digit inflation. And when they were writing supply contracts, they counted on it. Yep. And so you build that kind of cost increase into the, the business structures, it's self-fulfilling. You get inflation. And that and means so the, the Fed, Fed, after done being, whether they're done uh, you know, the beginning of next year, halfway through, they're going to have to keep it there. That's that seems to be the part that the market is confused about, right? Looking for a pivot. Just because you're done well, hiking doesn't mean you have to start cutting. I I really don't understand the confusion. I think Chairman Powell has been blunt and clear on this. He has said this will take a long time. It will take up to three years to get back to two percent. There will have to be a persistent period of restrictive monetary policy. That's that's that says keep it up there. You're not cutting. There's no, no question about that. He's been honest that there will be pain for American businesses and households. They've stopped using the phrase soft landing. I mean, yeah. I don't know what's left to figure out here. <laughs> Boy, uh, I'm glad you could be with us today. I, we're, we're praying for a soft landing, but I guess it would be uh, it would take a little bit of magic to pull that off at this point. Uh, Douglas Holtik, an American Action Forum president, former Council of Economic Advisors, chief economist with us on the fastest hour in politics and the hits just keep on coming here. You know who's in town right now to cover the IMF, with, which just yesterday, as you heard on this program, cut its forecast for global growth, is Bloomberg's own Tom Keen. He's getting a very unique view of what's happening at the IMF and with us here now in the Washington, D.C. Bureau. TK, welcome back to D.C. Wonderful to be here, I think. It's great to see you. I'm staying up late watching Padres Dodgers. It's difficult. And you've got the surveillance call in the morning. The surveillance nap must mean more than ever. So It does. And, and it's an uncertain time. So, frankly, you're watching the Bloomberg on your iPhone saying, okay, is the world <laughs> going to blow up? And the answer is we made it through another day. Well, I saw your promo. There's a Bloomberg apparently in the White House. There's probably one over at the IMF. Actually, there's probably a bunch of them at the IMF. The White House is perplexed this morning, but so is the market and so are you. How has none of this action by Jay Powell had any impact on anything? It had. That's a really important question. And the mathiness of it is we knew it wouldn't have an impact. And that you've had on Gene Sperling, who's wonderful at policy, an expert on fiscal policy like Douglas Holtz-Eakin, mm. across the political divide shows that the common ground of Democrats and Republicans in economics is they really know the Fed early in a cycle doesn't get much done. We've moved from ultra-accommodative to accommodative, and now maybe is where the heavy lifting starts for Jerome But then Powell. history repeats with a front-loaded action that drives the economy into a recession, right? It's like everybody, all, all the naysayers are being proven right. I, yeah, they are. It, it's, been a, it's been a victory for the gloom crew the last number of days. But I'd really take issue with economic slowdown is only because of the Fed. There's a number of other things going on, and some of them downplayed at these meetings of the World Bank and the IMF. For example, I would suggest the COVID challenge of China has a far greater weight on global demand, on the price of oil, than anybody can imagine. One of my key questions that hasn't been answered yet is where would oil be if China was open for business? And the answer is it'd be a lot higher. How palpable is the fear when you walk through the halls tangible, of the IMF? Tangible, 
Joe, you and I were younger. The Red Sox used to win when, when the last time it was that this It wasn't bad. that long ago. It wasn't that long ago, but actually it was. Uh, 08, 09, yes, it, it's, it's the same tension, but it's different. The, the major talking point for your audience, I would say, is the experts here off the mic are not looking at 08, 09. They're back four decades. Hmm. They're back five decades in trying to analyze this original pandemic war in Ukraine moment. Uh, that we're in. And the summary of it is, is, is Kristalina Gorgieva said today, the managing director of the IMF, and she gets her hands out, and there are these moving parts to the plumbing mm. of the system. Their focus, which is unfamiliar to Americans, is to keep the liquidity in the system, uh, particularly in the United Kingdom. And that's really the, the point focus right now at these meetings. You use the word original. With someone who has such a keen sense of history, I guess pun intended, what makes this original? It makes it original because there was a medical crisis. I laughed at my grandmother. I'd be down on Cape Cod overlooking Nauset Beach with a mm. beverage of her choice in her hand. <laughs> and after the third beverage, Grandma Keene would talk about 18, 1918 wow. and 1919, which is much worse than this. Yeah. And we'd laugh at her. And now we're not laughing. We had a pandemic. And the foundational issue of where we are right now is we're still coming out of this, this pandemic in many different forms. So I would call that the original moment still is the medicine of the moment. What was that turnaround today on Wall Street? Don't tell John Farrow I asked you. What made the Dow swing 1,000 points? I think just a lot of gloom. And so are the up, algorithms up go, running this? But, you know, here's what you do. Here's the, here's the secret, folks, and it's, it's nothing original. You're glued to your Bloomberg terminal on the iPhone. And you've got all these data points, and you can find a few of them that then link into whatever the news of the moment is from our headline service. And the news of the moment was a sigh of relief huh. over what was happening in the United Kingdom. As I was speaking to the managing director behind us through the glass of the IMF studio was a chancellor of the Exchequer speaking to the BBC. This is what it's come to. The it, British. This is what the, the British. There's a sigh of relief that the chancellor would blink on his f original fiscal policy. And that reversed, I would suggest that was the catalyst that reversed the market. I hope you'll be here more often in the new year. We'll, we'll have to, you know. In Washington, that the is. Next time the Red Sox win, I'll be okay, here. I'll meet you for a drink. If you see us at the St. Regis later, send a round over. We might need it. Uh, let's assemble the panel now. Let's layer on two more voices with Bloomberg Politics contributor and Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano, joined today by Lisa Caboussa-Miller, uh, back with us for the first time in a bit from Cogent Strategies, former comms director of the RNC. Lisa, it's great to have you. I'm going to start with you here. Uh, is, this, is this fulfilling what Republicans have been saying about Democrats for the last six months? Well, Joe, I think that the recent polling shows that inflation and the economy still are reigning supreme over every other issue for Republicans and for voters in general. And when asked, all voters polled have said that 54% of them trust Republicans over Democrats on uh, on the economy and certainly on inflation. So to me, that means that we are coming into a very, very strong headwind for Democrats into the midterm elections. Mm -hmm. Jeannie, what do you do if you're Joe Biden? You deferred to the Fed. You thought they were going to fix it. It went from transitory. Then they told you it wasn't. Now the, the rate hikes followed by rate hikes and more on the way don't seem to be making a dent. Well, I think he should join you and Tom Keene for that stiff <laughs> drink at the St. Regis and start from there. It's the I only mean, real answer, I think. It's the only answer. You know, I go back to Gerald Ford with his win button, whip inflation now. And people describe that, including Alan Greenspan, as incredibly stupid, and it may have been. But it shows you just how desperate presidents are, whether Republicans or Democrats, when they are looking at these headwinds. I mean, I keep this running list, and we talk about this all the time. IMF, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, mm. Larry Summers. I mean, you can just go down the list, the PPI, the CPI. All the numbers are looking bad. It's October. It's Halloween sign. You got to get out your really scary costume because this is what it's looking like. <laughs> and, you know, we're talking 26 days to the midterm. But don't forget, yeah. Larry Summers talking about a recession. Most people are talking about a recession next year. That marches you right into the presidential election cycle. Mm -hmm. This is bad news for the Democrats, bad news for the president. And to Lisa's point, the poll numbers underscore this. And the American public has got to be saying, why do we need experts? We told you we felt like it was in a recession. Technically, we may not be yet. But 
but that's how it feels and that's the problem the president has he's got to deal with how people feel right. not what the experts say is the reality lisa do republicans have to worry about this slapping back on a on a gop that takes the majority in the house if we if we think that all these rate hikes are going to lead to a recession next year well, I think that they still have a, a, a long list of, of items that they want to take up right away as soon as yeah. they take back the House. And one of them, Joe, to your listeners, is one that I think that is especially concerning. And that's the fact that they have said that they are separating from corporate America. They have taken this into their sites. They're looking at ESG as an issue that is of concern to them. And they're going to get active. They're going to get busy and they're going to start to point fingers. And they're certainly not going to take the blame. Yeah. They're going to point the pictures of the party. Lisa Cabusa Miller, Jeannie Shanzano, we turn to January 6th next on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Chairman, I request a recorded vote. A recorded vote is requested. The clerk will call the roll. Ms. Cheney? Aye. Ms. Cheney? Aye. Ms. Lofgren? Aye. Ms. Lofgren? Aye. Mr. Schiff? Aye. Mr. Schiff? Aye. Mr. Aguilar? Aye. Mr. Aguilar? Aye. Mrs. Murphy? Aye. Mrs. Murphy? Aye. Mr. Raskin? Aye. Mr. Raskin, aye. Mrs. Luria? Aye. Mrs. Luria, aye. Mr. Kinzinger? Kinzinger, aye. Mr. Kinzinger, aye. Mr. Chairman? Aye. Mr. Chairman, aye. The clerk will report the vote. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. The resolution is agreed to. And that was it. The finish of the January 6th committee today, it's last scheduled hearing, and that's the last one we expect. Voting, as you heard, unanimously to compel testimony and documents from, yes, Donald J. Trump. Is that really going to happen? There was some new evidence today, some new commentary we haven't heard yet. Excerpts from testimony, none of it live. Each member of the panel took time to take part in this exercise today. Typically, we've only heard from a few in each hearing. We heard from all nine today, and we're joined now once again by Rebecca Royfe, who was with us earlier in this whole process and back today to talk to us on Bloomberg. Joseph Solomon, distinguished professor of law at New York Law School, former assistant district attorney for New York County. It's great to have you back here, Rebecca. Let's start with uh, the matter at hand, and that's the vote to compel, to subpoena Donald Trump to testify. We don't think uh, that is going to happen after Republicans take the majority, do we? I don't think it's going to happen anyway. The, the subpoena will go out and he will disregard that subpoena, even if it were um, to go out before the change in um, administration, or sorry, ra- rather the change in makeup of the House of Representatives. So, you know, I think this was more a symbolic act than it was an act designed to actually obtain his testimony or documents Mm -hmm. from him. If Democrats somehow keep the House and this committee remains a going concern, is that a different story? I really don't think it is. I mean, I think he is going to resist that subpoena. And we've seen before that, you know, then 
Congress can perhaps refer this to the entire House. And then if the House remained um, Democratic, they could perhaps make a referral to the Department of Justice. But I really don't think, imagine that the Department of Justice would pursue a contempt of Congress case against the former president. We heard some pretty uh, interesting and in many cases very compelling moments from that day. There was new security footage. Uh, or it wasn't even security footage. There was new cell phone footage of the Democratic leadership, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, making frantic phone calls uh, from their secure locations. We also heard from Adam Kinzinger, uh, who brought us to a moment that I don't think anyone knew about until today, at least, that when Donald Trump essentially knew he was leaving the White House, he made a very specific order. Listen to Adam Kinzinger. Knowing he was leaving office, he acted immediately and signed this order on November 11th, which would have required the immediate withdrawal of troops from Somalia and Afghanistan, all to be complete before the Biden inauguration on January 20th. That is remarkable and could get buried in so much of the other material that we heard about today, but remarkable as well to hear the reaction from General Keith Kellogg, who made his feelings clear on the matter. I proceeded to tell the PPO and proceeded to tell... McGregor, that if I ever saw anything like that, um, I would do something physical. Would do something physical. Is this just kind of fulfilling the narrative here or filling in the narrative about what happened that day, Rebecca, or are there legal implications to this type of testimony? Well, I mean, I think it's filling in the narrative in an important way that does have legal implications. I mean, in part, it's part of a longer piece of uh, testimony that you know, came from various different sources that the president himself um, privately and to his close advisors admitted that he had lost the election. He was acting like a um, president who was about to leave office in a yeah. number of ways, including that shocking one, and that, you know, that is inconsistent uh, with what he was saying to the American public and what he was insisting on in these various different ways. And so that is crucial evidence of what his state of mind was. He certainly um, does not, it does not seem that he himself believed that the election was stolen if during this time he had essentially um, acted as if and said as much as his, as the deed lost, but he was still mm-hmm. fighting to hold on to power. Emails the Secret Service received, this was the day before and day after Christmas 2020, said protesters were, quote, armed and ready, unquote. Their plan, quote, is to literally kill people. Uh, There were tips as well. The Proud Boys planned to march armed to the Capitol. Have they succeeded in connecting the dots? I I mean, you know, I think that that's part of why it was so significant to subpoena the former president, because they have gotten those dots. So close together, and yet there are some lines that remain to be drawn. And what the indication was at the end of that hearing was that the only person um, who could, or people who could uh, connect those dots, have either pled the fifth or are Donald Trump. And so, without the testimony of those people, we are left to infer what actually happened. And I think, you know, that it was no accident that right before they took that vote, they had video footage of all of those who were so close to the president leading yeah. the fifth in response to questions, because what they were leaving their viewers with was with sense that, you know, why would they plead the fifth about these final last conversations with the president right. if there was nothing there? Or and even so they were putting on his lap to say, you know, you're the only person who can controversy this clear assumption that ought to be made from the evidence that we've heard. And I don't think he'll do it, but I think that was, you know, the gauntlet that was laid. One man who made great use of the fifth, Roger Stone. Listen. Do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Uh, On the advice of counsel, I respectfully uh, declined to answer your question on the basis of the Fifth Amendment. Mr. Stone, did you have any role in planning for the violence on January 6th? Uh, Once again, I will assert my Fifth Amendment right to decline to answer your question. Roger Stone got a presidential pardon, Rebecca. What's his future look like legally? Well, you know, I, 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 again, I I don't know. You know, the the presidential pardon um, certainly provides him with a kind of shield against many consequences that that might happen. Uh, Certainly he could still face 
um, repercussions in the state if he if he is liable in any state for criminal activity. But um, you know, I, it certainly remains to be seen. I have to ask you. Uh, it's it's somewhat unrelated, but I don't always have uh, Rebecca Royfe on the phone. The Supreme Court today handing uh, Donald Trump a loss. This happened the same day as this hearing in his fight over records from Mar-a-Lago, the documents case, refusing to intervene and reinstate the special master's authority to review some classified documents. Uh, Does that give the Department of Justice the upper hand to start moving forward with its case, or has it been doing so behind the scenes this whole time? Yes, I mean, I think it has been doing so. It has been proceeding. Nobody expected that the Supreme Court would take up that case. It was decided and well-argued and um, well-reasoned in the 11th Circuit, and it seemed, um, you know, quite a stretch that that the former president would think that the Supreme Court would take up this case. But, um, you know, I know he believes in some sense that the Supreme Court justices whom he appointed owe him something, that that's not the way the judiciary works. And I really doubt that they feel that way. As far as the DOJ goes with the January 6th uh, committee, I know it. there's been confusion about whether they would uh, make a criminal referral, but we now know the DOJ is well underway with its own case. Did the committee help the DOJ in its investigation or was this truly a political exercise or an exercise for the sake of history? So, you know, I I, I imagine that Merrick Garland was certainly paying attention to these hearings. But as you said, the investigation was well underway. It was underway, we now know, from before the January 6th hearings even commenced. So, you know, I don't think that there's any reason to think or assume that Merrick Garland is taking his cue from Mm -hmm. the hearings or from Congress. And as well, he shouldn't. I think that is a separate investigation that's proceeding in its own um, pace and, and and not influenced in any way by the January six hearings. So you know, no, I I, I I don't I don't think so. Rebecca Royfe, great to have you from New York Law School, former assistant DA, New York County. It's great to have you back on Bloomberg as we try to get our hands around everything that we saw and heard today in this hearing. Of course, well, I'm always watching, so you don't have to. And the moment that I described, see this aide, I guess took this film this video on a cell phone walking backwards looking at Chuck Schumer Nancy Pelosi plow through the hall with their security into the undisclosed location and they started making frantic phone calls in this case to the Secretary of Defense <laughs> inside the building I'm going to call up the effing Secretary of DOD we have some senators who are still in their hideaways they need massive personnel now. Can you get the Maryland National Guard to come too? I have something to say, Mr. Secretary. They're both well, yelling I'm into the call same the, phone. the mayor of Washington, D.C. right now and see what uh, other outreach she has to other police departments, as Senator Leader Hoyer has mentioned. Chilling. Whether this leads to any sort of criminal prosecution, chilling to know what actually happened that day. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us on the fastest hour in politics. I don't know how we fit it all in today. But we will. So what was new? What did we learn? Number one, and this is all laid out for you in a very nice piece by Laura Davison and Mark Niquette 
on the Bloomberg takeaways today. One, the committee's still investigating. We know that. We got the vote to subpoena Donald Trump. By the way, a final report has not come out yet. That's likely to happen after the midterms. Two, Donald Trump knew he lost the election and fought the results anyway. That was made clear uh, repeatedly uh, during Zoe Lofgren's period here, uh, having spoken with everyone who was around him that day. The congressional leaders made frantic phone calls. I just played that for you. A series of shaky videos showing Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and by the way, Mitch McConnell there too, getting updates from their staffs about the damage occurring to the building and what was going on outside. Here's another taste of that. They're breaking windows and going in, uh, uh, obviously ransacking our offices and all the rest of that. That's nothing. The, uh, the concern we have about uh, personal harm, safety, personal safety is it just transcends everything. But the fact is on any given day, they're breaking the law in many different ways. And quite frankly, much of it at the instigation of the President of the United States. And now, uh, if, if he could, could at least uh, somebody... Yeah, why don't you get the President to tell them to leave the Capitol, Mr. Attorney General, in your law enforcement responsibility? A public statement they should all leave. On the phone with the then-acting Attorney General, Adam Schiff, California, of course, on the committee says they received almost one million emails now, recordings and other electronic records from the Secret Service. They're still reviewing them. But as I mentioned, some of them are remarkable. The plan is literally to kill people, they said, referring to tips that the Proud Boys plan to march armed to the Capitol. Number five is that the president sought a last-ditch effort for an Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, That was pretty remarkable, as I played for you earlier from Adam Kinzinger. That was something we did not know about. Uh, including the reaction from the National Security Advisor to Mike Pence, uh, General Keith Kellogg, who said he's about to get physical to keep it from happening. Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, essentially had to stand in the way of this order to withdraw, immediately withdraw troops from Afghanistan and Somalia. There was so much we, we didn't know, and likely we still don't know. Let's reassemble the panel. Jeannie Shanzano, Democratic analyst, and of course Bloomberg politics contributor, is here Joined today by Lisa Camuso-Miller, back with us, former comms director from the Republican National Committee, a public affairs strategist. It's great to have you both with us here. Jeannie, uh, another remarkable exercise today. It's very difficult to tell if this is going to lead to anything. But Was there enough new information to justify the hearing? You know, I think there was. I was a little bit pessimistic going into this, wondering how they were going to do this. They had the delay because of the storm. We knew there would be no live witnesses. But I think they did give us, and you just reiterated, a laundry list of new information. I mean, I have to say, the the order for the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan and Somalia is absolutely chilling. I think this committee all along has done a brilliant job using video, documentary evidence of that kind, and the video from Fort McNair showing the bipartisan group, you know, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, but also Republican governors, Mike Pence and others, shot by Alexandra Pelosi, the speaker's uh, daughter, who's also a documentarian, is absolutely stunning. And and there is about 40 minutes of it, we understand. And you put that in contrast with what was happening at the White House, which as far as we can tell, the president was sitting in an office, flipping through his phone, doing nothing. That also was very chilling. So I thought they had a lot of new information, whether it amounts to anything or not. They had the dramatic finish of the symbolic act, I agree with your guest, of the subpoena of Donald Trump. It was a remarkable hearing. Uh, that may be seen as show business at the end there, Lisa, I realize. But this revelation specifically that the president, in fact, signed orders that were not carried out to to have a, a an immediate withdrawal of forces from Afghanistan and Somalia. Does that damage Republicans argument that Joe Biden botched the withdrawal? Oh, I don't know. It might be too little too late. I mean, I think that the damage has been done to the president um, as it relates to how that that withdrawal was man- managed. But, Joe, I mean, I think the thing that we have to take away from all of this is that Donald Trump continues to be a gigantic distraction to action in Washington, D.C. Action how, do you mean? 
action in all forces. There are so many other things that need to be addressed. And here we are investigating the former president for his actions and his role in January yeah. 6th. He's not only that, but he's also overlaying all of that into the midterm elections. While he's still playing the celebrity apprentice, leaders like Mitch McConnell <laughs> and, and, uh, and Leader McCarthy are trying to win back the majority in, that, in both houses. So it, do you do you feel like this was a distraction for Republicans then? Or was this then uh, not worth yes. the I time? Think it's absolutely a distraction, and it's and it's unfair because this is the former president. This is the most any former president has ever uh, interfered or not interfered, but been involved in a midterm election because yeah. Trump is he's he's identifying candidates and he's speaking into candidates, but he's also being investigated by former by by members on the Hill. So it's unfair of Trump is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely unfair wow. of Trump because the party itself is ready. They're ready to move forward. They're ready to move ahead and they're ready to, to get some things done for the American people. Well, how does, you know, Kevin ahead. McCarthy, who you referenced, reconcile his evolution on this? I mean, the tape on him, uh, you know, saying he was going to call Donald Trump. He did call Donald Trump. He went from one extreme to the other. And the, the famous picture uh, now of him at Mar-a-Lago with, with Donald Trump has angered a lot of people. But he clearly thought that he could not get the majority without Donald Trump. Lisa, don't you agree? Yes, I do. And I think that this his role in, in the leadership in the House is is even more complicated than it was previously with hmm. Speaker Boehner and with Speaker Ryan. I mean, they had the Tea Party to contend with. McCarthy has a much, much bigger uh, obstacles to get past. And so he's had to sort of figure out how to remedy and bring together this 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 caucus that is just completely broken in half. So what's going to be the takeaway on this, uh, Jeannie? Republicans have been clearly using Donald Trump uh, in many cases to win primaries and set up a majority in the House here. In some cases, those have not been the establishment candidates. But Donald Trump has been pretty good for a lot of these uh, uh, candidates, whether they be for House or Senate. Uh, I guess it's going to take some time for this to settle out as to what was what was the most effective move for Republicans to take power? And that's not to be confused with, with what is the most principled move. Yeah, I mean, another complication here is President Trump, former President Trump, is not only a former president, he is also likely the leading candidate for the Republican nomination for the presidency in 2024. He also has played a more active role, to your point, in getting candidates on the ballot for the House and the Senate and let's not forget, for state and local races than any former president has. So he's very much a leader, the leader of this party. And if the Republicans lose a state like Georgia, for instance, and potentially lose the Senate, that'll be once again at Donald Trump's hands, which is why Democrats want to talk about Donald Trump as much as they can. It's effective for them, but it's not effective, obviously, for Republicans in the general in some of these states where it's going to come down to winning these suburbs and particularly mm. amongst these women. So it's a very complicated position to be in. And I think one thing that Liz Cheney said today that we should underscore is she said this is about accountability. If he is not held accountable, it is likely to happen again. And as we look at the polls, this is exactly what many voters are telling us. For the first time, we're seeing democracy on the ballot in a midterm election in a way we haven't seen it in the modern era. Lisa, we know that uh, there are big plans uh, for Republicans if they do take the majority, assuming this happens uh, in the House, uh, with a series of investigations that are planned. They're going to immediately dissolve this January 6th committee and then start, you know, as they say, investigating the investigators. Will that be a distraction as well, or is that work that needs to happen in your view? Well, I think that I think it's a distraction, Joe. I mean, honestly, I know that they want to get back at, at all of the, the attacks that have come their way. But the truth of it is, is that the issues are so big right now. I mean, you've talked about it all through the hour. Inflation, the economy, gas yeah. prices. These are issues that voters are going to the polls about. And if the Republicans are smart, they will take on that kind of work. But they will also charge forward with some very smart policy decisions, because otherwise they've only got two years to defend their own positioning when we get back to the polls in for the presidential in 24. I think what was Kevin McCarthy says on day one, the first thing he was going to do is fire the 87,000 uh, IRS agents. Not, of course, that they all haven't been hired. Uh, but is that the type of messaging that we should expect or, or, or is that productive work? 
Boy, it sure feels like that's the kind of messaging that's coming through because yeah. I think that he knows that there is a whole wave of candidates that are coming in that are unlike any kind of candidate that we've seen prior in the House that are active. They are angry. They are not necessarily as connected to corporate America and the pocketbook issues as they have in the past. They're coming in with an agenda to break things up and change the world. And that's going to make it very difficult for Lito McCarthy to keep that whole conference together in a way that can be productive. Right. So what do they do with the rest of their time then, uh, Jeannie? They release a final report. I understand that'll follow the midterms. Does it? Does that even see the light of day? You know, we will see that final report. We have no, you know, it's, it's difficult to predict what impact that will have. I think um, on history, it will have a real big impact. That'll take some time. But yeah. let's not forget, if the GOP does take over the House, all of the evidence that the committee collected goes into their hands. So a big question coming out of today was why subpoena Trump and not Pence? Because those are the number one and two people involved in this. Pence's life was under threat more than anybody else's, and yet they decide to subpoena Trump and not Pence. I myself Hmm. have a question about that, as do many people, but some people are saying one of the reasons not to do it was had they done that and had Pence spoken, all of that evidence would go to the GOP if and when they take over. So that is a big consideration in a committee hearing like this. And so that's something they're going to have to, you know, it depends on who takes over the House, obviously, but this is where this information will go, right to the GOP. And should the DOJ take action on any of this, they will have, you know, at least that evidence collected in all of those interviews to know what to say and what not to say to the DOJ. It's a really interesting point, Lisa. Mike Pence said, you know, he would consider it and he would testify. I think we we all know that he likes to follow the rules. Uh, I just wonder, you know, in our remaining moments, how you see his station in life at this point? What what is his political career, if there is one, uh, promising him following this January 6th committee, following, uh, my goodness, the drama that unfolded on January 6th and, and just the vitriol that so many Trump supporters have for him. Well, he is a very principled legislator and very, very principled uh, human being. And so I do think that if you were to ask Mike Pence today, I think he sees this as a path forward for himself to potentially be a candidate in the future. Now, whether or not that is real and re- and realistic is yeah. is beyond sort of my world. I know Jeannie probably has a perspective on that as it relates to history. But overall, I think that he it would be very, very hard for me to figure out how he would have a path forward to 24. But he's right. certainly making moves that make it look like he is interested. Well, we all know that he is, uh, Jeannie. He, gosh, he's you know he's doing the Iowa State Fair and doing politics and eggs and the rest of it. But is that just a recovery tour, or is that a actual move to run for office again? Uh, you know, I think he has a real interest in running again. Whether he does or not is going to depend. But I think historically, Liz Cheney would tell him put the the best interest of the country and democracy ahead of your own political interest, yeah. and I think he should do that. Jeannie Shanzano, Lisa Camuso-Miller, what a great conversation. You will not hear balanced analysis like this anywhere else. That's why you're here. And if you showed up late, subscribe to the podcast. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.